So Genesis 12, and Genesis 12 turns a really big corner for us here in our study through Genesis, right? Because as you know, Genesis has been divided up into two main sections here. Chapters 1 to 11 were showing the primeval history, uh, looking at God and the world, essentially, as we looked at four major events that took place, creation, fall, the flood, and then the tower of Babel. And then in chapters 12 to 50, shows us the patriarchal history, God and Israel. And it detailed four, or will detail for us, four major people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So chapter 12 is a real turning point. It's a very significant occasion as it gives us now this Abrahamic covenant and ultimately the calling of Israel, all right? Calling of the nation of Israel through this man, Abraham. Super important here as we go through God's word. Genesis is ultimately moving us progressively from generation to degeneration to regeneration. From generations, chapters 1 to 2, from degeneration, chapter 3 to 11, and then regeneration, chapter 12, all the way to the end of the book in chapter 50. So we're going to pick it up here in chapter 12. We're going to look at this outline as we look at, hopefully, Lord willing, getting through a couple of these chapters. We're going to see Abraham's response of faith, chapter 12, 1 to verse 9. We're going to see Abraham's lapse of faith in Verses 10 to 20. And then Abraham's return of faith in chapter 13, 1 to 4. And then Lot's challenge of faith in chapter 13, verse 5 to 18. So that's kind of our outline that we're going to be looking at here. Read with me these first three verses in Genesis 12. Now, the Lord had said to Abraham, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will bless you a great, I will make you, sorry, a great nation. I will bless you. And make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So awesome. Notice it says here that the Lord had said to Abraham. Did you catch that right in verse 1? First few lines, the Lord had said to Abraham. In other words, this is in the past tense that God is speaking out here. God had already called Abraham. And what did God call him to do? Well, first of all, he called him to leave your country, leave your people, and leave your father's household. Now that's some pretty big steps right there, isn't it? And this is all the more difficult when you see that God hadn't even told Abraham where he was going yet. God had simply said, Go to a land that I will show you. Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. Right in verse one there. God doesn't say what land. God doesn't say, I want you to head this direction. He just says, go. (laughs) That's it. That's all the instruction Abraham had. Now as we back up a little bit, we're gonna see that Abraham didn't exactly do what God had called him to do, as it says that the Lord had said to Abraham these things already. Abraham wasn't moving too quickly in carrying out these instructions that God had given to him. When we last left Abraham, it tells us at the end of chapter 11 that Abraham is dwelling where? In Haran, with his father and with his family. The last two verses there. Look at chapter 11, verse 31, and Terah took his son Abraham and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abraham's wife. And they went out with them from Ur the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. Interesting. See, Haran is not where they're from. This is not where they were even, where Abraham even received the call. They're they're from Ur the Chaldeans. And so as they were making their way now, they went up north and they stopped in this place called Haran. Not where God had called them to go yet. But we notice that Abraham was first of all called when he's in Ur the Chaldeans. Genesis 15, 7. Then he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And then in Acts chapter 7, verse 2 to 3, and he said, 
brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And he said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. So Abraham's in Ur the Chaldeans when God calls him to go to a land that I'll show you, but they stopped in Haran. Now Ur the Chaldeans is modern day Iraq. It was a land of idolatry and idolaters. Abraham wasn't called because he was a God-fearing, devoted man of Yahweh. This is not why God is choosing Abraham here. He's not looking at Abraham going, Abraham, you are such a devoted follower of me. No, Abraham's dwelling in Ur the Chaldeans, a land of idolatry and idolaters. He was a man in the midst of all this. Joshua 24 verse 2 says, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods. So we're getting the picture here where Abraham was at when God calls him, and kind of the status of Abraham, that he's not a God-fearing man, essentially, at this time. And yet, God calls Abraham. I think this is so awesome. You may wonder, why did God choose Abraham? Why did God choose Abraham to make of him a mighty nation that would be Israel? Why did God choose to work through the nation of Israel? I'm sure those are questions that have popped up. Were they favored over others? Were they better? Were they stronger? Were they more deserving? No. Understand something here. It is all about God's grace, why he chooses, why he calls. It's all by God's grace. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 to 8 says, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. He's speaking about Israel here. For he says, You are the least of all the peoples. In other words, he's kind of like saying, You are like more undeserving than most. You're the least of all the people. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. You see, it's all because of God's love and grace that he calls people, that he chooses people. And it's the same for all of us. It, it, this has nothing to do with Abraham being more righteous or more deserving. It was all by his grace. And it's the same way that God calls us, that God brings us into relationship with them. It has nothing to do with us being worthy or deserving or earning it. It's all because God delights in extending his wonderful love and mercy and grace upon us. Praise the Lord. It's not good to know that there's nothing that you've done to earn God's favor and there's nothing that you will do that's going to cause God to say, yeah, no, I don't want to show my grace upon you. It's never been about what you've done or don't do. That's the same with Abraham. He's in a place of idolatry, living in a foreign land, have, having, as far as I know, no concept of Yahweh, and yet God calls him. So good. And this grace of God is very evident because as God called Abraham out of Ur the Chaldeans, Abraham isn't so quick to follow in obedience here. Are you seeing this? See, we notice an unfortunate thing happening. Abraham, he follows his father and he takes some of the, the family with him, lots accompanying him and, and others. This is not what Abraham has been called to do, right? It, it's very clear. Get out from your country and from your family and from your father's house. Separate yourselves from them. But Abraham's continued to be with them. See, instead of moving in the land God had for him, he stopped in an inferior place and it was wasted years for Abraham. Wasted years that we see in Haran. See, God calls us to full obedience, doesn't he? When God calls us, he doesn't say, okay, you know what? If you can just give me like 75%, man, that's gonna be pretty good. Well, God says, I want full obedience. I want wholehearted devotion. And Abraham didn't move in full obedience. Though Abraham may have justified his actions by at least taking some action. Well, God, I've left 
or the Chaldeans and I've moved up quite a ways now to Haran. I mean, that's something, right, God? No, Abraham's not trying to justify anything here. Plain and simple, he didn't follow through completely with what God had called him to do. Abraham was called to leave these things beyond and live out a new life that God had for him. Are you seeing the picture here? Abraham, I want you to leave the former things behind and I want you to enter into something new that I have for you. See, God calls us to be followers of him. And what does he call us to do? Well, we've been seeing it very clearly in our study through Ephesians on Sunday, right? That we're to lay aside the old things, leave the former things behind, the things of the old self, and walk in this newness of life. And understand, it may not be very easy God hasn't called us to a life of comfort, but when we follow him in full obedience, we're going to be able to take comfort in the fact that he is right there with us and he will see us through everything that he has for us here. And when we choose to walk in obedience to his will completely, we understand it's always gonna be better than anything else that we can choose for ourselves. Have you ever had an experience where you said, God, I see what you're asking me to do, but I think my way is gonna actually be a little bit better. Just wait and see. Has anybody ever tried that and found that their way is actually better than what God had in mind for you? Please tell me you haven't experienced that because I think <laughs> there's probably something to test on that one here. But, but God's way and his will is always gonna be better for us and anything else we can choose. Though we know that we're not guaranteed a smooth ride, we know that God's gonna be with us and bring us through and the, and the blessing of following him is always gonna be far better than anything else we choose for ourselves. Now it's interesting because Terah, Abraham's father, his name means delay. And that's exactly what they did. God said go, Abraham decided I'm going to delay. I'm going to keep my father with me, which is fitting because his name means delay. And we're going to stick around a little bit longer. See, when we choose our desires over God's will, we only delay his blessings in our lives. I think God is a God that just loves to pour out blessing and goodness in our lives. But when we fail to walk in obedience, we only delay those blessings unfolding in our lives. It's when we're walking in obedience, isn't it? that God is able to just pour out his goodness and his blessing in our lives. Jesus shared about a disciple that desired to follow him. And it, and it tells us in Matthew chapter eight, verse 21 and 22, then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. See, this disciple wanted to delay his discipleship with Jesus. But Jesus simply said, no, follow me. Now, it sounds kind of harsh what Jesus said, but understand that this man's father hadn't died. This is kind of a, a common expression or a common thing to withhold the weight until the parents had passed away before they moved on. This man wasn't saying, let me go and do this. It was saying, let me wait until my father or my parents have passed away and let me take care of that and then I'll follow you. He wanted to delay Jesus said in Luke 14, 33, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. How often do we delay what God wants to do in our lives? How often do we delay and say, Lord, I wanna follow you, but we go, but hold on, I got this over here I wanna play with first or take care of this or experience that first before following you. God, don't worry. You've got my heart, I'm with you but it's a divided heart and we want to go with these other things for a time and we delay just the blessing of following Jesus. Like I said, it's not always an easy path. Following Christ doesn't always guarantee a trouble-free life, but he is guaranteed that he'll be with us and he's going to bring us through to greater blessing in him. God doesn't always give us what we want, but he always gives us what we need He's faithful and he's good. Don't delay 
living a life that is fully surrendered to him and following him wholeheartedly, you will find that there's far greater blessings in following wholeheartedly Jesus than anything else you'll experience outside of following him. So I love that Abraham was having to learn right off the bat here now what a life of faith looks like. Right off the bat. Abraham, follow me. Here's where I want you to go. He's told to go to a land that God says, I will show you. Do you see that at the end of verse one? Go to a land that I will show you. In other words, Abraham doesn't know, like we said. God doesn't give him a map and say, here you go, Abraham wants you to follow this route and here's where I want you to end up. Doesn't have that. All Abraham has right now is that word go. Leave your, your father, your, your, your family, your country, and then go. That's it. There's no where it's going. Hebrews 11, 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Isn't that great? The same way about 45% of wives and their stories detailing their husbands taking them on a vacation. He went out not knowing where he's going. Didn't want to ask for directions either. But this is the necessary thing to do. The walk of faith is taking one step at a time. See, there's going to be times where God simply says go. Now, that's hard for us, isn't it? Because we like to have everything planned out, mapped out, figured out. We like to have everything lined up. How long is it going to take? What am I going to need for the journey? But this isn't always the way that God works. Because he simply wants you to trust him. He's, he, his leading and direction comes as we begin to move and follow him. That's how it often is with the Lord. It's when you take those steps of faith and you begin to launch out that God will then begin to direct and lead you. So you can't steer a parked car, can you? It's the way that God works in our lives. He wants us to begin to move, and as we begin to move, God then begins to direct and lead and steer us and begins to reveal his plan for us. He wants us to know, begin to move in faith. Take that step of faith. Trust the Lord and see what the Lord will begin to do. Well, that's verse one, so we're doing good. Let's move on. Um, so these opening verses here, as we get into verse two and three, and you know, the end of verse one, uh, I'll show you, uh, I'll take you to land that I'll show you. Uh, and then in verse two, I'll make a great nation. I'll bless you, make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here we begin to see this incredible, you know, beginning introduction really to this Abrahamic covenant here. Now, and these three verses are super important verses in Scripture. In fact, J. Vernon McGee said, this is the hub of the Bible. The rest of Scripture is an unfolding of this threefold promise. So what are these promises? Well, we just kind of said it. I, I will give you land, right? I will make you a great nation, and I will bless those who bless you. This is here where God prepared a man to produce a nation that will produce the Messiah that will produce salvation for the whole world. This is super important stuff here for us in these three verses of Genesis 12. Now, when he says, I'll give you a land, of course, that's the land of Canaan, which obviously becomes known as the land of Israel. It's clear that this land is God's land and his intention is for it to be Israel's. We're going to see as you go through scripture that this is an unconditional promise or covenant that God makes with them. This land covenant, that this is their land. It's not to be a land that's to be divided up, that's to be moved around, or where Israel has kind of forfeited their right to the land. This has been a promise that God has made with his people Israel that this is the land that I'm giving. It's my land and I'm giving it to you. Now, 
God's going to make it very clear in verse 7. He doesn't make it very clear right here in these first few verses, but in verse 7 is when God speaks to Abraham and says, I will give you this land. Right now he says, I'm going to take you to a land that I'm going to show you. Now over the centuries, this land, as you know, has been hotly contested. It causes you to see that this is more than just you know, about prime real estate, this really becomes a spiritual battle that's taking place within the land. When you think about this land that is so small, the, the, the nation of Israel, the country, you know, the size of the state of New Jersey, and yet all these people are fighting and, and, and trying to get more of it, saying, you know, we have a right to it or we need to have part of this, and, and they want to see Israel occupy less of it. They continue to try and strip away land from them where there's more than enough space all around that region that they don't have to touch Israel. There's so much space out there for people and yet it all centers around Israel. There's a spiritual component to this land that arrests people and angers people. See, there's those that just don't want to see the promises of God fulfilled. And there's a battle for this land. But it's God's land. And God's going to see to it that it stays as Israel's land. God next says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great there in verse 2. See, from one man's offspring now, a great nation would be birthed. Because Abraham was the father of the Hebrew people. Right? His name and legacy has been honored. I would sing in Sunday school. Maybe some of you guys did it too. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right? So good. Hey, right? Yeah, just okay. You're going to keep going now, right? I mean, as a kid, I'm like listening to this going, who is this Abraham? Why does he have so many kids? Like maybe take up a hobby or something, right? Like what's going on with this guy? You're kind of wondering, why are we singing about all this guy's kids? That's kind of weird, right? But you, you, you fail to realize until things start to come together that, oh, it's from this man that God's going to make a mighty nation. It's exactly what God has done. And his name became great, even great among the three main religions of the world, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. That Abraham is, is highly revered. Now before moving on to that third promise, notice the contrast we see between Genesis 11 and Genesis 12 because it was at, at Babel that when they're building the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 verse 4 that they all said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But now here in Genesis 12 verse 2, what do we read? God's saying, I will, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. See, when man attempts to try to do what only God can do, it's going to lead to frustration and confusion just as it did at the Tower of Babel. So at times, people think, I'm going to do this. I will make a great name for myself. But God's the one that takes Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to do this work. I will make of you a great nation. I will make of you a great name. Leave these things in the Lord's hands to deal with, to lead through, to make happen and not make it happen yourself. The third promise is not only a promise to Abraham, but it's a promise to all of us. And it is that those that bless Israel are gonna be blessed. And, and we've seen, seen this clearly evidenced even in our day, where nations that, that gather around Israel in, in support and coming alongside them, and, and, and their allies are few and far in between, right? But we see when countries begin to come alongside, there's just this blessing that seems to take place among them. And on the other side, when nations come against Israel, God says there's going to be cursing for them. It's going to be very problematic. Again, there's a spiritual component here to messing with Israel. This is God's nation, God's people. Not that they're more special than anybody else. I think we've seen that. It's all by God's grace. But it's a nation that he chose to carry out his promises that would be a blessing to all. Barnhouse writes this. He says, when the Greeks overran Palestine and Israel and, and desecrated the altar in the Jewish temple, they were soon conquered by Rome. When Rome killed Paul and many others and destroyed Jerusalem under Titus, Rome soon fell. 
Spain was reduced to a fifth-rate nation after the Inquisition against the Jews. Poland fell after the pogroms. Hitler's Germany went down after its orgies of anti-Semitism. Britain lost her empire when she broke her faith with Israel. We see all through history that, that nations that come against Israel don't fare well. And we see this most wonderful promise is given through Abraham that all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's speaking not just of the families of the nation of Israel, all the families of the earth, all nations, all people through Abraham would be blessed. Now, how does that work? What is it speaking of here? That's speaking of the promised Messiah that God was gonna bring through the line of Abraham, the line of Israel. See, the reason God came and called this nation and, and, and began to give them these laws was to protect them and to preserve them. And it caused them to continue in purity because of what God was gonna be doing in bringing the Messiah, the promised one, through that line. They were instrumental in preserving scripture for us, in copying scripture and, and, and seeing that maintained and passed out to the world. We're beneficiaries of Israel setting themselves apart from the world as God had called them to and having such a real high esteem of God's word. And we're beneficiaries that through Israel, Jesus the Messiah was born into the world to bring salvation, forgiveness of sin to all. We're all beneficiaries of this most incredible gift of salvation and eternal life. Very true that all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham and, and through what God was gonna accomplish through this one man and through the nation of Israel. And again, God's desire was not just in saving Israel, but simply in choosing Israel and calling them to be the instrument to carry out his plans and his purposes that would benefit all. These promises have a, a threefold, or they fall into three main categories. Personal, I will make your name great. National, I will make you a great nation. And universal, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, Paul, as well in Galatians, talks about how we all become these beneficiaries of this salvation. He says in Galatians 3, 8 to 9, in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you, all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham, just as Abraham trusted God, believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, Paul makes a case to say, you all become blessed with believing Abraham by your faith in Jesus Christ. So again, he equates it to this promise here that all the nations shall be blessed through him. So this covenant is introduced to us here in these opening verses, but this covenant is gonna be more so re-clarified and expanded upon in chapter 13. We'll see it at the end of our study here tonight, Lord willing. We'll see it again in chapter 15, chapter 17, and chapter 22. We'll see God reiterating this covenant, these promises that he's making with Abraham. So look at verse four now. It says here, so Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, and Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Just think about that, 75 years. That makes it all the more amazing where Abraham and Sarai have no kids. Abraham's 75, Sarai's 60 at this time, I, I believe, and God's saying, hey, I'm gonna make you a great nation. I'm sure Abraham's thinking, God, you, you got that right, do you? You see how old I am? You see Sarai? I mean, is this really gonna happen? Like, come on. I mean, I'm sure that, again, would have created a lot of struggle and faith. But here's Abraham, 75 years old, not, not having any kids yet. And God said, I'm gonna do this work in you. So they departed from Haran, verse five. Then Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions, that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh and the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, 
to your descendants, I will give this land. And there, Abraham built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So Abraham, we read there, finally departs from Haran. He's got a bit of a convoy going with him now, right? He's got his wife, Sarah. He's got his nephew, Lot. He's got others with him, various people he picked up in Haran. We're not sure if these were various hired hands that he had to help with possessions and livestock as he no doubt had much of this. But also perhaps it speaks of those that were converted by Abraham's faith and his desire in following Yahweh. Because when you look at, when it says there that in verse five, that the people whom they had acquired in Haran, that word for people is literally souls. And it could very well mean and imply that there were many that followed along with Abraham's desire to follow Yahweh. And it's through Abraham's testimony that people said, man, we want to be a part of that. We're coming with you. So many of them come and they're continuing on with Abraham. So Abraham arrives in the land and notice what we read there in verse seven. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham. Once again, God had called him earlier. While still in early Chaldeans, go, Abraham. Delays in Haran. And he marches on again. And as he comes into the land, then the Lord appears to him. It's when Abraham fulfilled that, that walk of faith, that, that role of obedience, when Abraham had done what God had called him to do, it's then that God comes and appears to him and reveals to him. See, Abraham could have easily questioned and doubted whether or not this was a, a prudent thing to do. He could have waited for further confirmation. But God doesn't work that way. He says, here's my word, follow it. And, and when you do follow it and obey it, you're going to begin to see me at work here. It's when we launch out in faith that God begins to reveal himself and reveal his plan in even greater ways. See, we often fail to hear or see God because we haven't stepped out in obedience with what he's already told us to do. We're wondering, God, where are you? What would you have me to do? Sometimes God's saying, I've already called you. To, I've already told you. Just do it. Walk in obedience. And as we do, then we begin to see the Lord. It's when Abraham fulfilled and walked in this obedience that God appears to him. And this is the first reference that we see of God appearing to the patriarchs. And there's going to be more. These were often associated with, with God just revealing these divine promises to them. I'm sure Abraham was greatly encouraged as he comes into the land thinking, is this right? Have I, have I fulfilled what God you want me to do? Suddenly God appears to him. God, a theophany appears to him. Oh man, that would have blessed Abraham, I'm sure. Greatly encouraged him. And, and, and Abraham is rewarded now with this fresh revelation of God because of his faith and obedience. And here the Lord makes clear again that he's gonna give this land to Abraham's descendants. It's quite sad that when it was time for Israel, you know, to come into the land after they had, again, they'd gone into Egypt, and we're gonna be seeing that in Genesis, and they come out and all through, you know, the Pentateuch, we see them wandering through, ready to go to the promised land, but then they were afraid. They didn't think we, we could do it. And yet God had always, always told them, it's a done deal. I've given you this land, Deuteronomy 3.18. He told them even before, they're ready to go and listen, here's the deal. I command you at that time saying, the Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All you men of valor shall cross over arm before your brethren, the children of Israel. He has given it to them. It's past tense. He doesn't say to them there in Deuteronomy, I will give it to you if you do this, this, and that. No, he just simply says, I have given it to you. But people were still afraid to claim it. I wonder how many things we have failed to claim where God has so clearly already freely given us. But the Bible says that he's freely given us all things. Do we allow fear to override faith and to miss out on entering into the fullness of the things that God has for us? When God has so clearly said, I've given it to you. This is yours. 
Take it by faith. Receive it. May we trust the Lord and believe the Lord, following him courageously in all that he has for us. And then we see Abraham doing something so wonderful there in, in verse 7. It says that he built an altar to the Lord. Now, this is a big deal for Abraham to do this. See, what would have been customary at this time would be to go into a land. This is a foreign land for Abraham, right? This is a new land, land of Canaan. It's, it's a land of pagan people. And it would have been very customary for somebody to go in and kind of pay tribute to the God of the land, which in this case would have been Baal, right? The chief God of Canaan. It would have been customary and proper for Abraham to offer up sacrifice to Baal. But he offered up, built an altar to the Lord, to Yahweh. In doing so, Abraham's saying, man, I'm, I'm all in here, Lord. See, this, this could have put a target on his back. This could have caused him to be taken out by somebody that was offended by Abraham offering up or building an altar to a God other than Baal. This here is an example of this Abraham showing this loyalty to Yahweh now. And, and it's an example of Abraham's righteousness that we're going to see later on. Look at verse 8 here. It says, And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abraham journeyed going on still toward the south. Now everywhere Abraham went, he was known by a couple things, an altar and a tent. He was a worshiper and a pilgrim. I think that's a great picture of the person that's living in this world and living by faith in the Lord. A worshiper and a pilgrim. It says that Abraham pitched his tent right in between Bethel and Ai. That's fitting because Bethel means house of God. Ai means heap of ruins. I would say it's where we find ourselves as believers. We're in that in-between, aren't we? Where we're living in the world and we see the things around us kind of like a heap of ruins and we're waiting to be in the house of God or to be with the Lord in eternity. Oh, we long for that. And so what we recognize is that God, in the midst of this world, I want to keep my eyes on you. I want to be living as a pilgrim where I'm not putting down stakes in the ground or putting down you know, roots in this world, understanding that this is not my home. We don't get comfortable and become attached to the things of the world in comparison to what's awaiting us in the house of God. All these things here are a heap of ruins. They're, they're temporary. So keep worshiping. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep living as a pilgrim. That's not to say it's wrong to own a home, but don't live with a tight hold on the things of the world. Abraham was ready to pull up those tent pegs whenever necessary. Abraham never built a house because it wasn't for this world that he was living for. He had his sights on something better. It says in Hebrews 11, verse 9 and 10, by faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's what we look forward to, my friends. That's what we're awaiting. That's what we are excited about. Knowing that this world will never compare. In this world right now, we live, we occupy, and our purpose is to make much of Jesus, to show him, to be a witness of him, to see many more people enter into that house of God, Bethel, where they can spend eternity with God. So this is Abraham's response of faith. Here now we look at Abraham's lapse of faith in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say 
you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. Now, here's the thing, gang. For faith to grow, faith needs to be tested. For faith to grow, faith needs to be tested. We like to pray, God, give me more faith. Increase my faith. And we love just to wake up one day and all of a sudden we just feel like, boom, it's like, whoa, man, I just got more faith today. Doesn't always work that way. What God does is he gives you opportunities for faith to be challenged, tested, to where we have to be those that exercise faith. That's how faith is gonna grow. Wouldn't it be great if you just said, Lord, I need bigger muscles. Just make those muscles grow. No, you need to understand, you're gonna have to exercise. You're gonna have to have some resistance in what you're doing for those muscles to grow. It's the same way with faith. God doesn't just increase faith, but he gives you opportunities for that faith to grow through challenges, testing, through resistance, so that we can learn to walk by faith, put that faith and exercise that faith, put it into action. So God allows that to happen here with Abraham. A famine hits the land of Canaan. Here's an opportunity for Abraham to respond in faith. Now Abraham does a very natural thing. He goes, there's no food here. Let's go to Egypt. That's a very natural thing. Abraham has a lot of people depending on him and he knows there's nothing for him there in Canaan. So let's go somewhere where we can hunker down and just kind of ride this out and be provided for. That's a very natural thing. I don't think any of us would really be faulting Abraham on that decision. It's a very natural response, but therein lies the problem. It was acted on in the natural. But God doesn't always operate in the natural. He's the God of the supernatural. And the problem is we see no reference here of Abraham seeking the Lord, of calling out to God and saying, God, what is it that I should do? Where are you leading me to go now in this situation? See, throughout scripture, Egypt becomes a picture of the world. Because a picture of the world. And when we become reliant on the world's ways or the world's methods, we're gonna be missing out on what God wants to do. And again, how we would want to show himself strong and able in those times. Isaiah chapter 31 verse one says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they're very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. I think that can sum up Abraham's response here. Abraham as far as we can see in scripture, did not seek the Lord over this. Now, as they're on their way, as they're about to enter into Egypt, Abraham starts to rethink this decision. Hey, Sarah, maybe this wasn't such a smart move. Why didn't you stop me? He's thinking of Sarah now, and he's realizing, honey, you're, man, you are just drop dead gorgeous. You're just beautiful. Man, I hope you say that to your wives often. He's looking at Sarah going, you are so beautiful, and when you come to the land, people are going to be like, man, this, this is something that we would want. And they're, if they think we're married, well, in order to have you, they're going to take me out and be done. So just say that you're my sister. That way I'll live, and you, you know, most likely will too. <laughs> Thanks, Abraham, right? Real nice of you. But this is the plan. This is the, the idea here that he comes up with. Now, there's some truth to all of this because Genesis 20 verse 12 tells us that Sarai is Abraham's half-sister. So there's truth to this, but Abraham is presenting this in a very deceptive way. And like we discussed on Sunday, a half-truth is still a whole lie. And so Abraham is walking now away from the Lord. He's moving into the world, trusting in the world, and now begins to walk in deception. See, when we walk deceptively and into known compromising situations, you not only put yourself in harm, but you put others around you in harm. And that begins to be very clear as we continue on here. Look at verse 14. So it was when Abraham saw 
or came into Egypt, sorry, that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram, you know, sitting here in Egypt, he's relishing in good fortune while Sarai is left wondering what's gonna happen to her. It seems like she's taken into, you know, um, Pharaoh's house there, perhaps into his harem, right, is the idea. And she's waiting, what's gonna come of me? Thanks, Abraham, great plan. Hope you're enjoying all your well-being and all your goods that you've acquired now. Right, I mean, this is, this is tough. It's not a good situation that Abraham has brought on, but again, by God's grace, he's in control. See, because of Sarai's important role in the history of salvation, right? It's through Abraham's seed that's gonna obviously come from Sarai as well. It, nation's gonna be birthed. And God is not gonna allow some heathen king to come and defile that womb of Sarai. So he protects her. He allows a plague to break out on Pharaoh's house. It became evident to Pharaoh that there was a deceptive plot at work here. And, and we don't know how he figured that out, if there was revelation or if somebody kind of spilled the beans. We don't know exactly what happened, but Pharaoh, why did you lie to me? Why'd you tell me? She was your sister when she's actually your wife. I could have, I could have gone and had her as my wife. But again, God protected that. The sad thing here is that Pharaoh is acting more upright than Abraham is. Not the way it should be going down. Now, a couple of things to note about this account here. Think about Sarai, who walked in like full submission to her husband, Abram. Submission seems like a, a dated thing in today's culture, but it's a biblical reality. And what we recognize here is that God took care of Sarai. Oh, I'm, I'm sure it would have been fine for Sarai along the way to say, listen, Abraham, I'm not too comfortable with this lying thing here. A little bit deceptive. What's plan B, Abraham? Let's maybe come up with an alternative plan. I should have been fine for her to question this, to say, but what do we see Sarai do? She submitted. And again, this seems like such a, an archaic kind of a thing to talk about today. People, ugh, they get their back up against the wall whenever you talk about Submission, but it is a very biblical principle. And what we see here, without trying to make too much of this, is that God protected Sarai. And he dealt with Abraham. God's the one that came and he used a, a pagan king to rebuke him. But understand that God is dealing with Abraham and his heir while he's protecting Sarai. And there's something wonderful, I think, for wives to know and I, and I I was going to say I can't wait to get into this in, in Ephesians 5 soon but I'm also going am I am I excited about that because you know dealing with all that it's it can sometimes you know create a little bit of fury but that's okay we, we can we can handle that God's in control but see the idea here is that we can think submission no way that's not right but when we submit and we put ourselves in the Lord's hands, you're in good, good hands when you trust the Lord with these things. And he is able to take care of you. I mean, my wife oftentimes will say, hey, I mean, sure, you're the one that has to answer God. So, oh, whatever you say, okay, we'll do it. But boy, you're answering to God on that one. I'm like, <coughs> thanks, thanks for that encouragement, honey. <clears throat> right? I'm like, yay. I'll do what you want, but yeah, 
It's on you. I'm like, okay, okay. I'm like, great Lord, help me. But it's true. There's, I think, a real blessing to be able to say, I'm going to submit because this is what God has called me to do. And, and God, you've got you to deal with these things. And you will. You'll take care of it. Another thing we learned through this lesson is that when circumstances around us become tough, don't forget the power and the might of God. Don't begin to look at your circumstances and allow your circumstances to dictate what you need to do. When God works above and beyond the things that are going on around you. Abraham just moved on in his own reasoning without giving God a chance to lead. His followers of Christ, again, we can expect trials, right? But don't freak out. Don't leave your place of worship like Abraham did. Press in all the more to see what God wants to do in that trial, in that season when things are pressing in, when things are challenging, when circumstances are not perfect. Press in all the more. God say, God, what do you want me to do? So often we're saying and praying, Lord, get me out of this. Whereas we can be saying, Lord, what do you want me to get out of this? What do you want to reveal to me? What do you want to show me? What do you want to do and work in me through this? Let's press in with the Lord in those times rather than running off in our own reasoning and thinking. Imagine that our plan is going to be better or more comfortable. It certainly wasn't any more comfortable for Abraham going his way. And You see, God's ways are not our ways, are they? And we have to make more of a mess of things when we rely on our wisdom over God's leading. Abraham didn't leave here unscathed. Many Bible teachers believe that it's as he came out of Egypt. And notice, I mean, Pharaoh graciously, God graciously blesses Abraham with many things here now. But many believe this is when they picked up Hagar. Genesis 16 tells us she was an Egyptian maidservant. And so we'll find out that some of these things continue on to unfold problems by those initial mistakes or errors that we make. Sin is a, a dangerous thing to play around with. And it can continue to compound more problems if we don't deal with those things. Well, so we've seen Abraham's Response of faith, we've seen Abraham's lapse of faith. Let's look at Abraham's return of faith here in chapter 13. How are we doing? Everybody doing okay? Still with me? Chapter 13, we're gonna, we're gonna go through this fairly quickly. So, um, Then Abraham went out from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had in Lot with him to the south. Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place of the altar which he had made there at first, and there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. This is what a life of repentance does. Life of repentance says, man, I've erred. I've been going my way. I need to stop. I need to turn around, and I need to return back to God's way. And this is exactly what we see happening with, with Abraham. I love that it says Abraham came back to where he was at the beginning to the altar which he had made there first. See, he returned back. That's what repentance does. Repentance says, man, I've drifted. I've gotten off track from what God has for me. I need to turn around, change my mind, change my course. I need to come back to what God has for me. And Abraham came back to the altar which he had made there at first. Sometimes the Lord has us just come full circle. He desires to bring us back to where we started with him to reveal how far we got away from him. It's like what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus there in Revelation 2, verse 4 to 5. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Do those first works remember what that was like when you were enjoying that time of just devouring God's word and prayer and worship sometimes we drift we get away and we need to return 
And Abraham is doing just that. He's returning back to what God had already started in his life where, Aaron, or sorry, where Abraham had gotten away from it. He returns to what is important, worship and calling on the name of the Lord. Man, may we never forsake those things. And maybe it's been a while for you since you've spent the time where you've been like, man, I've, I've not had that real devoted daily time in God's word or in prayer. Man, I remember when I first got saved, I couldn't get enough of it. But maybe over the years, you've gotten comfortable, maybe drifted. Not forsaken the Lord, but just gotten away from those first works that were such a, a passion and joy. Lord says, man, return, come back. Let's get back to basics and get back to having that heart that just wants to seek the Lord more and more. And then we see, lastly, Lot's challenge of faith. Look at verse five. Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Abraham said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Verse nine, is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I'll go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes and he saw all the plain of Jordan that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go toward Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. So again, going back to the beginning of chapter 12, I mean, Abraham was called to leave your family and your father's household. And, and we're going to see that as Abraham continued with Lot, that Lot's just going to be a bit of a, going to be, a little bit problematic, isn't he, right? And, and here's Lot, and the, and the herdsmen now are kind of squabbling, right? They're getting a little bit claustrophobic. They're feeling like, man, we gotta, we gotta separate here. And Abram, I, I think we're just seeing some growth here now. I mean, he's not playing the trump card saying, well, since I'm your uncle, man, I'm, I'm gonna choose where I'm gonna go, and you're just gonna have to go where I tell you you're gonna have to go. No, Abram, says, Lot, where do you want to go? Wherever you go, I'll go opposite. That's pretty huge. Reminds me of Philippians 2.4. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And Abraham is doing just that. So Lot looks out and he sees all the plain of Jordan, right? This fertile ground. It says he, he traveled east there in verse 11. And that's interesting because scripturally it seems... Um, you know, especially in the Old Testament here, traveling east always seems to be moving away from the presence of the Lord. It was the way of Cain as he moves east of Eden in Genesis 4.16. It always seems to indicate this moving away from the presence of God. Lot certainly is representing a man of the flesh intent on kind of satisfying his own desires. He's not looking at, God, where would you have me go? God, you've called us to Canaan. I wouldn't mind having a part of Canaan at least. No, he moves east away from God's will to that which appealed to the flesh. Lots of men that's given over to the desires of the flesh. But you see, as he looked and he saw this land that was desirable, it led him toward unsafe places. We're gonna see in later studies that Lot progressed further and further into Sodom. He started off by looking at it, Right? And then he pitched his tent toward Sodom. Then he's dwelling in Sodom. And then we're going to see him essentially being a leader in Sodom. It's a sad progression, one that reveals that slippery slope of sin. We just can't mess around with it or, or else we're going to get burned. Lot perhaps thought, well, I'll head that direction, but I'm not going to get too close to it. And we just see that gradual progression of him getting closer and closer to finally just right in there, and a part of the whole situation in Sodom. 
Fortunately, because of Abraham's intercession, Lot's going to be spared. But again, we're going to see that Lot is just going to be this problematic person for Abraham. It's interesting that when you get into the New Testament, you read in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, or sorry, 2 Peter 2, verse 7, that Peter refers to Lot as righteous Lot. That you kind of go, how does that equate? How do we get there? Well, we got there because it's on the other side of the cross. And you see, when you bring the cross into the equation, we understand that it's, again, by Jesus' grace that all of our past mistakes are buried. They're wiped away. The slate is made clean. When we come to Jesus, we're no longer defined by our past. We're forgiven and we're made new to where a guy like Lot becomes seen as righteous Lot. Well, verse 12, here, let's finish the chapter. Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. So there we see him now. Now he's getting closer. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Lot should not have desired anywhere remotely near this. Are already seen as wicked and sinful against the Lord. And then in verse 14, the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see I've given, or I give to you and your descendants forever. Do you see that? Forever. That's key right there. This is not a conditional thing. This is something God is doing. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abraham moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. So now that Abraham is walking here, it would seem in full obedience or fuller obedience, the Lord speaks to him again, doesn't he? And reconfirms his promise to him. I give you this land and I'm going to bless your descendants. Abraham is moving in fuller obedience and God is showing up and revealing and reconfirming all that God has already said to Abraham, reassuring him in these things. And though Lot took the choice land, so it seemed, God gave Abraham a much better reward, didn't he? Sometimes we can think, oh, this is what's going to satisfy. This is going to be helpful or a blessing to me. And it may look like it, but it's not the way that Satan loves to move by appealing to the lust of our eyes, the lust of our flesh, and the pride of life. Lot followed after those things. He saw that this land was good, but Abraham says, I'll go the opposite. I'm going to follow what God has for me. And God is blessing Abraham. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Mark 10. Verse 28 to 31, then Peter began to say to him, see, we've left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, assuredly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, mind you, and in the age to come though, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. I think Abraham begins to fit this very well. And notice what we read in verse 18, then Abraham moved his tent and went and dwelt in the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. Mamre means strength or fatness. Hebron means association or union. The picture is a wonderful one here. See, instead of turning to the land of Sodom and sin, Abraham continues in the place where God called him. And what does he experience? A place of communion, strengthening. He's fed and he's nourished as he dwells with God. This is what we see with Abraham. That life of obedience, that walk of faith is always gonna be far more rewarding than anything else you will find elsewhere. Let's continue on wholeheartedly Serving God, growing in God, being worshipers of God, pilgrims in this land, communion, spending union with the Lord, being strengthened and fed by him. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for just letting us come together here today and, uh, and just to get into your word once more where, Lord, we know we're nourished and fed and thank you for these examples that we have in your word like Abraham and Lot, good examples, bad examples. But Lord, I pray what we've seen here tonight that we'd be those that will walk by faith and, and live out just a full heart of obedience to you and to what you call us to do, Lord. May we spend time just learning of you, growing in you, hearing from you and worshiping you so that, God, we would know that course to take in living for you, following you, and walking in obedience, God. Strengthen us for that. Help us, and may we be those that are just being a witness and a light in this world around us as we live for you. So thank you for each person here tonight. Would you bless them and encourage them and strengthen them? Lord, whatever needs are here tonight or represented even online, I pray that you would just move in our midst and in in each life. Lord, that you bring healing where it's needed. You bring encouragement and, and strength where people are perhaps discouraged or down depleted i pray that you would pick people up here tonight and just reveal again your goodness and your love for them and god that they would be again just energized renewed and just thankful for all that you've done for them so we love you and we praise you lead us on from here tonight we pray in your name amen